to a lady called Nora Tear. And I knew her when I was a teenager living on Merseyside. By that time, she was already past retirement age. She lived in a rambling old house where for many years she had looked after her mother, her elderly mother. And since her mother's death, she used that house to provide accommodation, particularly for missionaries on furlough who needed two or three weeks somewhere to stay and for other people who needed temporary accommodation. And I actually lived there for a while because my parents had to move back to Plymouth and I was just about to do my A-levels and it didn't seem a good time to change schools. She was the one who would help out with whatever needed doing in the church, just that sort of person. And one Sunday she was taking the Bible class because the, uh, the normal leader was away on holiday and uh, this will really surprise you. You know, I used to talk a lot in those days. I used to have opinions and tell everybody what I thought. And I was going on about something or other. And out of her love, she just said, Michael, how can you say that? Are you really a Christian? And that was the start of my personal commitment to Christ. I've been in Sunday school since I was three, but never become a Christian until this little old lady that most people didn't even notice spoke words of love in response to my mouthing off about stuff. And I wonder, when we get to that point that Paul talks about where we know everything, whether the ministry of this one insignificant person will prove to have been greater than the ministry of people who were famous. Love, in action, changes things, changes people, changed my life. Let's just remind ourselves of some of the passages. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. In John's Gospel, this is my command. Love each other. And in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have not love, I have nothing. What well, could be clearer? I mean, you can hardly miss it, can you? The whole of the New Testament, and if we actually look at it, the Old Testament as well, says we've got to love God and we've got to love one another. It's the greatest command. It's the most important thing. Without love, we cannot please God. And yet, nine times out of ten, our priorities are different. What do you think about when you think about a church? What do you judge it by? Ooh, wonder what its preaching ministry is like. Do they have good people at the front preaching? Ooh, wonder what its worship's like. They've got a good worship band. Is it lively? Is it spirit-filled? What about all its activities? Will there be something for my children, something for my teenagers? Will there be a meeting that I can go with? Will, will my needs be met? How often, when you're thinking about going to a church, did you say, how much do these people love God? How much do these people love one another? How much do these people love the community in which they live? See, churches are not always loving places. I think of a church many years ago, and it's long closed now, where the first time I went to preach, it looked a bit like social distancing today. 
we're going to say, somebody sat there, and a couple of people there. And, some, and I said afterwards, why, why don't people sit together? Oh, well, they don't get on with them, and that, they don't like them, and they're not speaking to... Is it any surprise the church closed? Could it be my preaching, of course, but... Um, love, the Bible clearly says, is the essential. And yet so often we make other things more important. There was a man called Tertullian. He was a church leader in the second century. And he wrote um, and said, do you know what the people outside the church are saying about the church? They're saying, see how these Christians love one another. And they're saying it because they don't see that in the society in which they live. Is that true of us today? Are people that don't come to church saying, well, I don't go to church and I don't believe in all that stuff, but wow, you can see those Christians are full of love. That's what it should be. 1 Corinthians 13 is a, I mean, it's a great sort of poetic chapter, isn't it? And often it's sort of plucked out of the letter to the Corinthians, and oh, we'll have that at a wedding or some other suitable occasion. But Paul isn't giving us a piece of poetry. He isn't sort of saying, oh, I've really hammered you with all this hard stuff, now we'll take it easy and do something nice for a while and then we'll go back to it. No, this is the practical teaching, the keystone of what Paul is saying to sort out the church in Corinth and the church today. You see, the church in Corinth was basically a mess. It was not an ideal church. And so many problems could almost have been Baptists. They were divided into factions. People were in groups. Oh, well, I follow Paul. No, 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 no. Apollos, he's the great preacher. You listen to him teach. I'm an Apollos man. Oh, no, Peter, because he was the original there with Jesus. Oh, yes. And then the very pious people. Well, actually, I follow Jesus. And they were all in groups. And they didn't get on with each other. And Paul says, you're worldly. You're mere infants in Christ. Jealous and quarreling. What does he give as his practical solution? Love does not envy. Does not boast. It's not proud. Stop the squabbling. Stop the arguing. Stop the boasting about your group. Learn to love one another, to listen to one another, to respect one another. So easy to label people, isn't it? You know, somebody says something that we don't want to hear because maybe it challenges us and we say, well, of course, they're charismatic or evangelical or liberal or whatever, whatever it may be. We stick a label on them and we don't want to know. Instead of saying these are brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to hear what God's saying through them. They were engaged in lawsuits against one another. Now we're not told what. Maybe uh, property and money and business and all this kind of stuff. But people looked on and look at those Christians, not see how they love one another, see how they fight with one another. You know, they're coming up in the law courts and they're supposed to both follow the same God and love the same God and yet they're, they're arguing about this delivery of corn or, or that uh, flock of cattle or whatever it might have been. What's Paul's solution? He says, love 
keeps no record of wrongs. In fact, he says, it's better to allow yourself to be wronged than to get into quarrels and litigation and all the rest of it. And if you've really got a problem that needs to be resolved, find people you trust and love in the church. Don't go into the court system. They argued about whether it was right to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, this seems to us to be totally irrelevant and nothing to do with anything. But you have to remember that eating together was a major thing. If you invited somebody to eat with you, you were showing social acceptance. If you were, didn't, well, if you refused an invitation or you didn't give it to somebody, you were saying, I reject that person. And if it then gets all sort of complicated with, ah, has this meat been sacrificed to idols, you can see the kind of thing. And what is Paul's solution? He says, love always protects. It looks after the needs of other people rather than my own. If I'm invited and it's set before me, I'm not going to ask awkward questions. I'm not going to be difficult. If I'm inviting somebody and I know what their needs and their preferences are, I will try and accommodate that. I'm always thinking of protecting others. We're going to share in communion later. Their Lord's Supper, their communion, was an absolute shambles and a disgrace. It was done in the context of a meal. People ate together and the bread and wine was shared as part of that. Well, if you were reasonably affluent, you could turn up when you liked. There was no set time. It was not in a church. It was in somebody's home. And you could go along and uh, it may be the host was providing the meal or very often the, uh, the people coming would all bring food. But if you were working or if you were a slave, and one of the radical things about the early church was that slaves could be members of the church, then you couldn't get there until you'd finished work or until your master had released you. So what's the obvious thing? Well, those who get there early, they sit around chatting and wait until the others come. No. They said, we're going to eat and we're going to drink. And actually, sometimes by the time the poorer people came, they were drunk. And there was no food left for those who needed it most. And this... At the meal when we celebrated the love of God. You can hardly credit it, but we could probably find examples in our own setup. I don't think they probably hated the poor or were saying, oh, we don't want those coming to our church. Though churches do divide on social grounds sometimes, and that's a church for middle class people, and that's a church for working class people. It's just, they didn't think about it. Could never entered their head that they ought to have some sort of responsibility. And what's Paul's solution? He says, love is patient. You wait for other people. Love is kind. You think about other people's needs ahead of your own. Here are the situations. Here's the answer. It all comes back to love. Not all the problems had easy solutions. 
a member of the church in Corinth, had taken his stepmother as a mistress. It was quite common in those days, Greek and Roman society, for a man to have a wife, a mistress, and a concubine. Um, and this was happening in the church, and more than just happening, it was his stepmother. Perhaps his father had died or divorced her or whatever. It was not just a sexual sin, but in the eyes of the culture of that day, it was heaping dishonor on his father, whether his father was still alive or dead. It was a scandal even to pagans. Nobody argued that this was right. And the church, oh, well, you know, that's fine, we're not bothered. And Paul says the man should be expelled from the church. You think, oh, hang on a minute, I thought you were saying the solution to all these problems is love. How can it be love to expel somebody from the church? Well, it's love for people within the church who might be wrongly influenced. The same reason we're wearing masks and sitting socially distanced and why um, we've had lockdowns and all that kind of thing. Sometimes somebody has to be isolated to prevent them causing harm to others. It's love for the community because it protects the reputation of the church in the community. As I've said, it was a scandal even to the pagans. But also it's love for the man who was excluded by showing him the seriousness of his sin and giving him an opportunity to repent. There's an interesting passage in the second letter to the Corinthians. Paul's talking about some particular individual. He says, if anyone's caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Could be referring back to this same thing, could be a different situation. But the thing about church discipline when it's necessary out of love is that always there's an opportunity for repentance and reconciliation and bringing somebody back in. We discipline not because we're angry with people, but because we want to bring them to repentance and right living before God. It's interesting to note, by the way, if you're thinking about excluding people from the church, all these other problems in the uh, Corinthian church, Paul doesn't say do that. It's only the one that in the context of those days would have been the most absolutely serious of all of them. So this is a kind of last resort, so bear that in mind. Another difficult issue they had, how do you resolve this in love? It's the role of women. And there's lots of arguments about passages about women in Corinthians and elsewhere. But the gist of the situation is this. From the time of Jesus and into the church, the church was incredibly radical about women. It allowed women to be disciples, to be church members, to be taught. And you think, that's not terribly radical. Well, yes, it is. Because the rabbis 
did not teach women. It was a waste of time to teach women, they said. You only taught men. <coughs> and the church was radical. It admitted women. It taught them. It allowed them to have various roles in the church. Some of them became teachers and leaders. And in theory, yes, they could have any role in the church, do anything that men did. But sometimes things got a bit out of hand, especially at Corinth. And in the midst of all this arguing and debating and having rows and disagreements about this, that and the other, the women got involved. And the appearance, again, was scandalous and shocking, bearing in mind this is a different context from what we're looking at. And it was doing harm, both to the reputation of the church in the community and damaging marriages. Like with slavery, the church couldn't change society overnight. It couldn't abolish slavery, so it welcomed slaves and treated them as people. Technically, in law, slaves were possessions, not people. Treated them as people and welcomed them and treated them as equals. It did the same with women, but it couldn't change the way women were perceived in society. And so there had to be some kind of balance as to how you did that and how um, things were conducted. A temporary thing until society did change as it did with slavery. Women were allowed to prophesy, pray and prophesy with their heads covered because that was the custom. They, Paul says they should be silent in the acrimonious debates because what it's doing is bringing disgrace on their husbands. And that may not be something we understand, but was very real in that culture. And again, it's love. Love that says, I will not put my rights, my views, my opinions ahead of the benefit. We will try and work out something that doesn't put people down or lock them away, but enables us to do it in a way that works and a way that creates love. We're in a situation today where there are all sorts of opinions and the rights of minorities is a massive issue. And as Christians, we have to find a way of treating everybody lovingly and equally and fairly, but yet in a way that's not going to hinder the work of the gospel. So, I don't know, was that what you expected for a sermon on love? Maybe not, I don't know. But we can sum up Paul's teaching and Jesus' teaching by saying love is supremely important. Love is completely practical. It's not a vague emotion. It's about how we actually deal with situations and the way we treat people. And uh, that means that love is extremely hard work. It's not easy to listen and take an interest in boring people. It's not easy not to lose our temper when people are saying stuff we disagree with or disagree with. It's not easy to love. It's not a vague emotion. It's about hard work. William Barclay's got a good comment on Jesus' commandment. Um, because of the time he wrote it, he keeps talking about man rather than people, but you'll know what he means. 
It is only when we love God that man becomes lovable. The biblical teaching about man is not that man is a collection of chemical elements, not that man is part of the brute creation, but that man is made in the image of God. It is for that reason that man is lovable. The true basis of all democracy is in fact the love of God. Take away the love of God and we can become angry at man the unteachable. We can be pessimistic about man the unimprovable. We can become callous to man the machine minder. The love of man is firmly grounded in the love of God. To be truly religious is to love God and to love the men whom God made in his own image. And to love God and man not with nebulous sentimentality, but with that total commitment which issues in devotion to God and practical service to men. Devotion to God, practical service to one another. We've got a new minister coming, in case you haven't noticed. Won't be long. When new ministers come in normal times, it's a difficult period for the church. Do you know, sometimes new ministers come in and they've got new ideas. Change! Well, we've been through a difficult time as a church and then we've been through, how long is it now? Is it 18 months of COVID? And everything's up in the air. Of course there's going to be change. We're going to be thinking, how do we do this? And what's the best way of doing that? And when can we start that? Or perhaps we close that? And uh, what do we do? How do we do it? Who does it? How are we going to fund it? What's going to happen? There's going to be every opportunity for arguments and anger and uh, writing people off and all those kind of bad things that get into churches. We've all got various ideas and views on all sorts of subjects, and it's absolutely right that we share them. But we need to share them in a way that's loving. We need not to be arrogant. I mean, you know, I know I'm always right, so other people are always wrong, aren't they? It's just obvious. My mother used to say of me when I was younger, she said, you act as if everybody's out of step by you. And we can do that, you know. Yeah, it's, it's my view, so it must be right. Or it's my need, so it must be met. Oh, well, I need the kind of services that do this. I need the kind of meetings that do that. I need the kind of pastoral care that... And that's all that matters. Or we can be in a spirit of love that says, what are the needs of the whole church? What are the needs of the community? How can my needs be met and other people's needs be met? Perhaps the most unloving thing we do is we we simply don't listen to other people. I was talking to a a child who'd been doing homeschooling and I said, uh, what did Miss say on the, uh, the Zoom thing today? I don't know, he said, I'm paying attention. And whereas he was honest enough to say it, we often do it. Somebody stands up in a church meeting and makes, says something, we think, oh, it's only them. Don't need to pay any attention to that. Or somebody in conversation says something to us and we don't listen. And when we don't listen to one another, we fail to hear what God is saying to us. 
just very occasionally, I have felt I've heard God speaking to me directly without any other intervention. It's just come into my mind that God is saying this. But normally, God speaks to us through one another. He speaks to us through that conversation. He speaks to us through that opinion expressed at a meeting. He speaks to us through our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we don't listen, we don't listen to God. So we've got a chance not to be like the Corinthian church. As this new minister comes, as we start to do all the different things, we can make a conscious decision. I am going to try and be as loving as I can. I'm going to listen to other people. I'm going to think about other people's needs. I'm going to care for other people. And I'm going to care about what's going to bless the community because we're not just here for ourselves. As far as I can, and this is why I say it's hard work, I will not get angry. I will not try and cause dissent. I will not form a little group over here that's going to campaign for this or a little group over there that doesn't speak to people who disagree with us. I will seek to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, to love God, and to see the love of Jesus spread in the community. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is more important. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't do it on our own. We've got to have your love in our lives if we're going to love one another. So fill us with your love. In coming weeks and months and years, help us to work through <coughs> all the different issues we have in love. And may this church, like the church back in the first century, have a reputation where people say, wow, they love one another and they love the community they're in. Father, let your love overflow through us. In Jesus' name, amen.